0: You're listening to the Automotive Analyst Series, a podcast by Red Blue Capital. I'm your co-host, Prescott Watson, and along with my partner, Olaf Sackers, we're interviewing the researchers behind the buy, sell, and hold calls that drive the news cycle. Each episode, we're opening up the floor to an analyst that covers our space and looking for a broader, behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. For highlights, show notes, and to find more episodes of this and other Red Blue Capital podcasts, Visit us online at news.red.blue. This episode, we're speaking with Itai McKelly, the head of auto research at City. Itai's been covering auto since just before the 08 crash and emerged from that period making early and correct calls on a number of things, including the strong rebound of trucks and SUVs, which of course today are the most important profit drivers for American OEMs. We sat down with him to cover everything from how to use or not to use consumer sentiment or purchase data to forecast trends in the automotive space, to what electrification means for truck buyers, or who truck buyers are, and how COVID's going to impact long-term car ownership rates in the U.S. using what he calls vehicle household density. Itai has been a key voice in this industry for many years, and we're really happy to have him on the podcast. Let's dive in. Itai, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great
1: to be here.
2: Maybe
0: you want to tell
2: the folks at home a little bit about yourself, uh, including how you got into automotive research and what you do.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Itai McKelly. I am Citi's uh, US equity analyst. So, it means I cover the public companies and the stocks uh, across automakers, suppliers, uh, even some of the rideshare companies. I've been at this for over 20 years in different roles. I actually started in fixed income or credit research. So, I got to see the whole cycle. In 0809, and, and we began to equity coverage in roughly 2007. I think the title of our initiation report at the time was "From Restructuring to Evolution," because even back then, it seems industry would undergo a massive restructuring followed by an evolution and clearly that evolution has been accelerating very rapidly in the last five or eight years. People
2: really thought it wasn't such an interesting job until the crash happened and then became like the center of things, right?
1: Absolutely. It was obviously, rough in 2008 and nine, but what was always attractive about the industry, right, is it's huge, right? It's a humongous industry, it transcends industrial consumer, now increasingly tech and software. And once the industry went through this restructuring that it in many ways was inevitable, you knew that a lot of change was coming after that.
2: And you mentioned you cover things like ride hailing. I'm assuming you didn't start out looking at things like ride hailing or the taxi industry when you were first getting going at this.
1: Yeah. So years ago, we we began to understand in our Car the Future GPS series, which I think we began almost seven, eight years ago at, at this point. Um that this was becoming really just a, a mobility industry that would move from analyzing companies from how many new cars are sold and what the price of those cars were and the margin profile to really understanding broader mobility. And we're still in in that process. And of course, ride hail, shared mobility, we, we knew would be a big component of that, and particularly once you get to autonomous vehicles. So yeah, we began to look at, at that industry to try to understand where those business models work, maybe where do, they don't work, how much um, market share would they take from personal car ownership? And one of the most interesting dynamics we've been exploring at City for, for about 10 years is this idea of vehicle density or how many cars per person or per household we have and how many we're going to have. And it started actually because in 08, 09, forecasters, relatively newcomers at the time, but forecasters like myself, all got the cycle wrong we all predicted demand terribly incorrectly you know what i think back in, to, in late 2007 people thought including myself at the time that u.s auto sales for new vehicles in a typical recession would probably go down to 14 15 million per year well, we went to 13 million in 08 10 million in '09. we didn't get back to 14 15 million you know for a few years e- even thereafter And so we did the look back period in 2009, 2010 and said, why were we so wrong? We realized that something had fundamentally changed even back then, which is for the first time in history, we began to see again, back in 08, 09, a decline in the number of vehicles per household, which meant that US as a society, we were kind of scrapping more vehicles than we were replacing. And we realized that at that point in time became the most important part of forecasting so to your point on, on ride hailing, uh, years later, we leverage uh, some of the survey work that we had done on on this topic where we go out to uh, consumers and ask them, hey, how many cars per household do you have today? How many do you think you'll have two years from today and why? We leverage that analysis on ride hail until today. We do a lot of work on that front because it really does come down to a lot of debates that we have around which mobility platforms or mobility options will work where. A lot of it comes down to what do people ultimately need and want as it relates to their number of vehicles per, per household? Yeah, you Because know, in the U.S., right, new vehicle car sales, because we have two cars per household today, is a very discretionary purchase. In other words, if if new auto sales hypothetically went to zero for a year, then one year from now, we would have no problem getting ourselves from A to B. And because it's such a highly discretionary purchase, you really have to understand how many cars per household do people want? And we call this report, do they want to drive, which is the basis of our survey work.
0: The discretionary concept is interesting because it really emphasizes how for a manufacturer to grow, you have to either take market share from other people or you have to get people to make that discretionary purchase. And you'd referenced some consumer surveys before that were interesting. What are some of the interesting quirks you've seen that kind of Look at that discretionary aspect of the spending.
1: Sure, yeah. So, uh, you, you know, we, we saw like, one of the most interesting takeaways recently from our work has been during COVID in twenty twenty. We ran the survey, and obviously, this was at the depth in May of twenty twenty of the downturn. You know, we were home, and and yeah, you know, I was probably convinced the survey would show some demand destruction. But what it actually showed, and I was surprised to see it myself, was that was demand creation, and and that also showed through in our twenty twenty one survey, and in part of that that. Demand creation, we believe, is tied to de-urbanization. So over the years, it's, it's definitely identified a couple of interesting topics. There's also work you could do on segmentation. Like pickup trucks is a super important segment. It's a huge profit center. In the industry. So we, we could look, identify different regions where different uh, car companies operate, different segments operate and make some interesting ideas from that. Because one thing about auto is I've looked at it for a long, um, is there are a lot of these kind of groupthink misconceptions over the years, you know, I, I, you know auto sales won't fall below 14 in, in a downturn and oh wait, whoops, it did. And then it'll never get back to 17 million. And of course we did. Or the pickup truck segment back in 8 we'll never come back. We're all going to drive small cars. And a lot of times it's just, I think, picking the right survey data points that maybe others aren't looking at. And here's one example. When people look at demand trends, they focus a lot on new car sales. What was the percentage of cars versus pickup trucks oh. versus SUV sold in a given month? But new vehicle sales only represent the behavior effectively of 7 to 9% of the driving population. And so you actually can glean a lot more interesting demand patterns by looking at trends in the install base of vehicles and used vehicle pricing and doing some survey work there because there's this overemphasis on the new car sale as being, quote, the auto market, when in fact the auto market is much bigger, of course, in In the used or the installed base uh, of of the industry
2: so you're saying because people buy a car once every maybe five years on average only about a fifth of people that would be buying cars are looking at buying cars in any given year and so there's this kind of segmentation effect so if you do a survey you might actually be able to know what all buyers are thinking even though this particular year might skew towards some random effect
1: Absolutely. I'll give you one example. One of the other things in 08, 09, one of the biggest conceptions at the time that was widely um, accepted and and automakers made huge capital decisions on this was a notion that because pickup truck uh, sales at that time fell by 50%, surely Mm -hmm. that meant that people now don't want pickup trucks and have shifted away to small and mid-sized cars because those segments were doing better. But how do you know by looking at auto sales alone on a monthly or quarterly or even annual basis, if that decline in pickup truck new vehicle sales actually reflected people literally trading in the pickups to go to smaller cars or just they didn't buy, they stayed home? And so we began to ask this question in our pickup truck work. We They're said, just
2: waiting to buy a pickup truck. Waiting basic. to buy, yeah, the deferral. They still wanted one and they were going to buy one later. They just didn't buy one that year.
1: Exactly. And how would you kind of know that? You would say, well... If a lot of people have started with trading in their pickup trucks for small cars, you would see literally this glut of pickup trucks that were traded in and they would accumulate, accumulate, accumulate because nobody wants them anymore. And eventually one or two things would happen. Either you would see the, the prices of used pickup trucks plunge and or you might see going back to vehicle density you might see the number of pickup trucks on the road decline. You would see scrap, so pickup trucks leaving the fleet, leaving the installed base, exceed those coming in, and so the installed base would decline of pickups, I e the number of pickups per person per household would decline, and therefore, yeah, that would mean demand has shifted. What we were seeing back, uh, we call this our "go long" pickup thesis. Not very creative, but that's what we called it back then. And it was go
2: big, go long, long. Yeah, you know, maybe you
1: should call it go big. Yeah, we didn't have too much time to think about it. But what we noticed at the time, and, and this still, by the way, is happening till today, was even though pickup tr- new pickup truck sales were declining, the installed base, the number of pickups on the road wasn't declining. It was increasing. It was actually increasing over time at a faster rate than GDP. And used pickup truck prices also weren't declining, weren't just increasing. They were increasing faster than other segments. So at the time we had said, look, it seems like not only has demand destruction not occurred, demand is actually fundamentally growing. And that, of course, ended up playing out o- over the years. So it's an example like where survey work and different data points can certainly be helpful in that regard. But it makes this industry, covering the industry, uh, really fascinating because now today with EV and AV, I think they're similar. And who knows, right? I mean, this is still evolving. So, you know, we don't have all the answers by any stretch, but there's, I think, some similar type of what we think are misconceptions that people rush to, which has been common in the industry.
2: Um, We'd love to dive into electrification and pickup trucks, maybe a step back before that I feel like, from an automotive analyst's perspective, uh, America and pickup trucks, like pickup trucks are more American than apple pie in some sense. But maybe that's worth contextualizing and explaining. Like, for a company like Ford, are pickup trucks important?
1: Super important. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, those are the biggest franchises in terms of revenue, in terms of profitability. They're very high volume, very high price, and therefore very profitable.
2: And there were almost no pickup trucks being sold like in the 50s relative to now. I mean, it's just grown as a segment. It, it's grown mm-hmm. as a segment. And that and SUVs, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I, I,
1: I argue SUVs have kind of gone through a bit of a transition from like a body on frame SUV to more of a crossover. But pickup trucks, we think of really going back to the looking at the number of pickups on the road and the used price. I don't think there's any other segment that has shown that type of above GDP growth for so long through cycles, through good times, bad times in the past 18 or so or 20 years. So it's been a very powerful trend and uh, competition is more limited in that space as well. EVs we think will, from some of the survey work we've done recently, probably continue that expansion. I think in our last survey that we published late 21, something like What we saw was non-pickup truck owners were almost two times more likely to consider buying an EV pickup truck than current pickup truck owners.
2: Because you might think that electrification would disrupt pickup trucks. I think the Cybertruck was talking about having a a contest with the Ford F-150 to do this kind of tug of war. But it wasn't. It isn't obvious that electric vehicles go that well with pickup trucks, which are like big vehicles. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's certainly. It's, it's a huge industry. If you look at the price of an average pickup, if you you know you go to buy one, there's maybe a thirty thousand dollar difference between the fully loaded one and, and the baseline one. So it actually does. Span across a number of industries, including personal use buyers. Mm-hmm. Personal use buyers could be the initial buyers of pickup trucks. You know, it's interesting because what one of the things that helped to drive the growth in the last 20 years or so, maybe 10 years of pickup trucks, was the introduction of the crew cab, right? The two rows where now the pickup can be your personal vehicle and a utility or work vehicle. The mix is like almost like dominant across across crew cabs. There's also double cabs still. So like a smaller, a uh, sing, single row. But that, yeah, that really was one thing that had think helped drive incremental demand because now you're just saying they got bigger, rules. right? They, they trucks, got bigger.
2: Trucks have gotten bigger. And so the cost of them has gotten bigger, but also the spread has gotten bigger. Like there's still the low-end ones you can buy. But now if you want a really fancy pickup truck, you can get one with two rows
0: and other cool stuff. Well, it's crazy also because in the States, the low-end pickup truck market really floundered for a while. I mean, the Ford B series was just left untouched for like 10 years before the ranger came out again. And now the ranger's coming out with like the Ranger Raptor. And one of the questions I have is how much of the truck market and the mix of trucks being sold is car makers needing to push lifestyle products and just latching on to the fact that Americans want this type of lifestyle versus like what are the other factors that drive people to want to buy these types of vehicles?
1: Sure. Yeah. So uh, it's a great question because we've gotten this a lot. what what, like why so popular? And one of the concerns from investors and analysts is that is it a bubble? And we got this question years ago. Meaning, is it just a bunch of people who don't need the utility of a pickup truck and are just buying it for fun? The economy has been strong, and as soon as anything it's goes a discretionary bad, discretionary purchase. Discretionary, exactly. So what? So it's, a, it's an important question. And so one thing we've done as just a, a an interesting analysis at City. It's not it, it, just anecdotally to go out and get some more data on this. Is we. Years ago, with one of our vendors, we tapped into traffic cameras to say, if we can observe pickup trucks driving uh, on the road, and we had some software implemented on, on those images to say, why don't we count which pickup trucks are completely, uh, you know, have an empty bed, they're not towing anything, just a pickup truck driving, we'll, well call you guess that- it's like 95%? It actually, what we've seen is it much more of a skew towards what we call loaded trucks, oh. or, or, or trucks that are towing something. So- that was a, a, a barometer to, to gauge the mix of personal use versus commercial use, and commercial kind of won that. Again, it's not a; it's not like every. Cam- you know, it's maybe I think we have twelve traffic cameras, so, so just an you know an interesting study that we ran as opposed to like a formal survey. But it, it certainly did but not. Were these cameras that. in
0: Bakersfield or were these cameras in Manhattan?
1: Right. All, all over. Yeah. They they were all over in some urban areas and certainly a lot of highway areas. And we did collect a ton of pickup trucks over the years. We also did a, a study, I think, during COVID in 2020 to see, because of course we pick up other vehicles too. So we count cars and SUVs, but we only really focus on the pickup trucks. And and from our work in COVID, we, we saw that the, the it seemed like p- that there were pickup truck miles driven held up better in other segments which also, I guess, sort of supports the notion that these are being used for work and utility as opposed to the people who just stayed home, let's say. So we we think there's actual real demand behind it.
2: What are the advantages to customers of buying electric pickup trucks? Like any, like why would they do it?
1: There's yeah, a lot of interesting things coming and it all depends on the price point, but obviously there's the immediate savings on the propulsion costs bi-directional charging is going to be really interesting to, to watch how that proceeds. And you Bi-directional
0: got, charging, you're saying like being able to charge your home when the power goes down or something like that. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Which is you know, something that's still new uh, in, in the EV market that will be really interesting to observe, particularly in a pickup truck segment, where if you're on, on a site uh, or, or, or something, if you're doing you know, work, that could become very handy. And also one thing we, we think is interesting is the front trunk, right? We talked about the crew cab. Also known as, as, as the front, yeah, uh, the crew cab having you know created this greater use case for this machine. And if you have and actually have a, a friend in town who who is is one of these potential new customers, they say, well, I have wanted a a pickup truck uh, for personal use. I don't use it for utility or or, or you know, but I, I want one. But in the past, I didn't want to have stuff in the exposed bed and and have to manage that through. Well, now with a front. Trunk or frunk, you can put stuff in there, and you know that's something interesting to watch. And we wonder whether that is contributing to what we saw in our survey work, which is that current non pickup truck owners are more likely to consider an EV pickup truck going forward. If that if that were to happen, that would imply that in addition to the trends we've been observing for you know many many years in the growth of this end market, you may see additional growth from EV pickup. So. Yeah, I think there's plenty of room for for this market to grow.
2: Just a quick like zoom out for context. It's quite interesting. We've done a lot of focusing now on American pickup trucks. As a step back, you, you're basically trying to like look at the world of this particular segment, all these companies that are selling. You've got limited information. You're using these techniques to try and figure out information and then predict the future, which is very interesting. And you mentioned two trends earlier in the conversation. The one was around trucks and how that's going to shift. But the other was around exurbanization and COVID. Yeah. So yeah, it was
1: interesting because you were anecdotally hearing friends, people in cities looking to move out, particularly ahead of of a school year. And we saw those those trends clearly. We even saw a little bit of sign in, in our 2020 survey of maybe some shift from like public transportation to, to to vehicles, which which certainly made sense at the height of COVID.
2: But our friends aren't necessarily America, right? Like wh- what our friends are doing isn't necessarily what everybody True. is doing, Absolutely.
1: Right? Yeah. Which is of course, why, why we ultimately rely on the survey more more than the anecdotes. But yeah, but it wasn't shocking when the survey showed some of those trends. We weren't sure of in, in 2020, it was this a one-time you know, situation? So we ran the survey back uh, again in 2021. We were, again, pretty surprised to see that those trends had not uh, abated, and, and we did it mid 2021. I think it was, it was April, May. When, when I think we were in a lower point of the COVID wave at the time. It seemed like at that point there was a light at the end of the tunnel. It was before the last wave, of course, we all like went we through. feel now. Yeah, <laughs> like we feel now, exactly. So we were we thought we would get a more of a post COVID view in 21, but it was still reading pretty uh, pretty bullish for auto demand. And so what we wrote is that look, there's there is a path, and again, right now we are very supply constrained, but we thought that there was a demand path to as much of a 20 million annual U.S. Uh, selling rate versus typically we peak at 17 million. Again, a lot of it is just off that incremental vehicle density tied to those trends.
2: I've got one more question. Referencing back to something earlier, you said normally you used to think this was the base that the total number of vehicles wouldn't go down below 13 million and wouldn't exceed and that margins would adapt accordingly. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the silicon crisis? Maybe explain What's happening in the industry today? Because I feel like this is the other big thing besides COVID and trends towards consumer spending more on certain categories of vehicles. There's this big thing happening called the silicon crisis. What is it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So today, what will new vehicle sales be has become much more a question about supply, right? We've seen a semiconductor shortage that really began um, in the first quarter of, of 2021 as, as we were kind of coming uh, of COVID. Cause of silicon um, in them? Yep. Yep. Um, and, and, and a lot of other, frankly, shortages as well and, and very tight supply chains. So I'll give you a sense, you know, U.S. dealer inventory of, of light vehicles is running at about just over a million units. Typically, it would be three to four million in a healthy market.
0: This means how many cars are sitting on dealer lots waiting to be sold. Correct. So we're yeah. running really lean. Dealers don't have much to sell. Really lean. And if our demand thesis from our
1: survey work proves to be correct, or even remotely correct, and if you look at some of the industry auto production expectations in North America, it would mean that dealer inventory will grow, but will stay well below that three to four million units out to 2024. And so it was. I think we're going to be in this for a while because of this supply-demand Shorter time. If you think about what's happening, our 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 survey, which we think is playing out, is telling us consumers want more cars per household. Okay, but so how do how do you increase the number of vehicles on the road? You have to sell more vehicles and and add more vehicles at a greater rate than those being scrapped and and leaving the fleet because of their end of life. If new vehicle production is constrained, but scrap is just continuing to to play out, then it's a struggle for that fleet to grow. Yeah, consumers want these vehicles. What happens is what you're seeing in the used vehicle pricing market where prices are just astronomical. And And you have the
0: stories about dealers gouging. All that stuff, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Why, I mean, you talk about this as
2: if it's Newtonian mechanics, but why, on uh, I mean, people aren't talking about a shortage of silicon for iPhones. Like, why is the automotive industry suffering this problem? And why is it, like, you've explained, like, why it's making secondhand vehicles expensive. But, like... Why don't we, why can't we just make more silicon? I, I think
1: it's a capacity issue. There's more content per vehicle. So what companies have described is just competing for capacity with other industries.
0: When you say content per vehicle, you mean there's more chips in a car than there are in a knife.
1: Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. The, the dollar content has grown significantly. Electric vehicles have a lot more of, of this content when you think about ADAS and semi-autonomous, active safety systems and, and like semi-autonomous semi. So all the smart systems.
2: electronics in the car is being controlled by discrete pieces of yep. silicon around yep. the vehicle.
1: And there is some capacity issue even for legacy chips as well, which is a problem. So it's actually not, it doesn't have to be the advanced chip. So chips. like the
2: electric window controller exactly. might not be able to function because yeah, very. Legacy, and if you're missing simpler. one chip, the whole production line whole, stops.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the industry's gotten a little bit clever in being able to maybe hold back some features and still deliver vehicles. But there is tight capacity for some of the legacy controllers and chips out there that will have to be, be addressed o- over time.
2: And Anything that touches on the fact that this is such a global industry that you've got parts moving, you know, Taiwan to the United States that affect the production lines and. Basically, manufacturers have become more and more optimized in producing things just in time. So once you start having these snags in the supply chain, you really have a ripple effects on a global scale.
1: Absolutely. And then, now I think the industry is is thinking: Do we want three to four million of, of dealer inventory if EV demand really you know begins to inflect even more to the point where combustion vehicle sales, gasoline vehicle sales start to decline? We want to be more cautious. And so I think this. Um, Supply demand imbalance. I think it's causing the industry too to say we've destocked inventory at a time when pricing is really strong, right? Which I mean, th- if you think about going back modeling a- any scenario, who would model like really strong pricing but significant inventory destock? That I think is, it's almost like a rebirth, a little bit of the industry where they can say, "How do do we want to plan the next couple of years given all the technology disruption?" And I think they're all kind of thinking about it in that way.
2: Um, so you, you've, we've spoken a lot about like things affecting. I think the cool lingo in the industry is autos 1.0 and maybe 2.0. But what about the next wave of things? Like, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah. Um, One product that we've evolved to try to understand the near-term adoption of technology is to actually try to mine data to figure out which trims are being uh, sold in terms of vehicles. Because if you look at typical sales and production data, it could tell you how many Ford Explorers were were sold, and that's great. But increasingly, I want to know what percentage of those Explorers had a certain system, a uh, uh, you know, a the larger screen, the digital cluster, whatever it might be, the active safety a level two system. And so, we we have for actually years worked on uh, a very proprietary data set that can do that for some very high volume vehicles and more in the U.S. So that's what's one way, whereas the equation- so the
2: expensive things that are being sold in large volumes that will actually move the needle.
1: Exactly. And I think, as
2: I mentioned before, it, it, it go back to
1: pickup trucks. There's a $30,000 gap roughly between the entry level and the fully loaded version. So you sit back as an analyst and say, if I'm analyzing a supplier, and of course, like the car company too, I don't need to know how many pickups were sold and that, that's important but I also need to know where's a lot of the, the expensive ones or the, or the baseline entry level ones and so that data which uh, we don't think it really exists in such a typical data providers in the industry we've built on our own to understand the various portions of technology adoption and you know, that's something that we continue to evolve
2: but that's more in the traditional model of cars is just getting people to pay more for, for them what about Say, we like to think about the world shifting from selling vehicles to selling miles. How do you think about that shift or, or that opportunity space?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's a great topic. It's it's great to segue into it. So it, 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 it's a couple points on that. The simplest way we like to explain it is when you think about electric, autonomous, connected, when you combine these technologies in the right way, three things happen, frankly. First is the cost per mile of the vehicle enters a state of decline over time. You can debate how much, you could debate how, when. But now you're in a state of decline, whether it's a propulsion cost, insurance costs, we think about safety and autonomy, maintenance, repair. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the revenue per mile begins to go up. Because to your point, absolutely, you go from having to sell features, you have one shot on goal to sell me that feature, to now having multiple and lifetime shots on goal to sell me a subscription or software package on the existing hardware. And so again, still very early days within that. And other things, data monetization, that would increase the revenue per mile. And the third thing it does, it allows the industry to rethink how you sell mobility. I sort of roughly model lifetime revenue that a car generates. By our estimations, today's automaker only really captures 40% of that lifetime revenue, probably even less so on a gross margin uh, basis. uh, Because within that new vehicle sale, it's pickups, it's luxuries, only a handful of of real end markets that are are really profitable. And so you can begin to think about models where that 40% can grow. Maybe the car itself becomes a subscription. We could talk more about that. But we think the biggest enabler to that is autonomy, is AV. Because once you get into a consumer AV, which will come likely after the robo-taxi uh, deployments, that's when these revenue per mile up, cost per mile down becomes a, a way to for an, a, a mobility platform or an automaker, or whoever it is, to be able to capture that spread and do it over the life of the vehicle. And if you're only getting 40% of lifetime revenue today... There's a lot of existing economics that you can grab without necessarily having to capture a higher share of the wallet from the consumer.
0: Is that additional revenue attractive, though? Like the 60% that the automakers aren't capturing today, what is that? It's largely fuel costs, but also maintenance. And is that actually attractive revenue? And how do fleets think about that when they deploy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The maintenance repair industry tends to be pretty profitable. know, um, insurance Scrappage. as well. Scrappage. Scrap, yeah, services. And so, so, yeah, if the second owner wanted a feature that the, the first owner didn't want, now you can ca- capture that as well. It'll be e- even being able to update the vehicle throughout its life, a new compute, new, new things that can give the vehicle additional value for
0: uh fairly limited cost, perhaps, could, could be interesting. So, yeah, I think the short answer is absolutely. It's interesting to think that different companies have different postures towards the types of revenue they want to capture. We've spoken with the management at some of the biggest rental car companies in the world, and some of them are really interested in the EV space because they can take a car from new, and instead of defleeting it after like 100,000 miles, they'll just run it all the way into the ground and they'll own all the revenue through the lifetime of the car and the scrappage and everything. From a Silicon Valley perspective, most software companies are like, we don't want to do anything but sell you the software at 80% margin. Like It's an interesting divergence where you've got two types of companies in the world, one that wants to do everything and then this other kind of tech world that's really trying to only do that narrow vertical.
2: Neither of them are like the traditional industry, which kind of- Is makes, neither here nor there. Yeah. And makes very low margins.
0: And so like the auto companies, I think, have a choice. Do they go and I think maybe with Hyundai and Motional, I mean, I'm not sure if you can talk about individual tickers, but certain groups are trying to bite off more, whereas other groups are focusing on at-scale manufacturing and other groups are focusing on just the AV stack. I feel like the US car makers have
2: consolidated a lot Pulled out of international markets recently just to double down on GM SUVs and and Ford pickup trucks, arguably, and and then electrifying them.
1: Yeah, look, if you believe in these markets, yeah, there's a lot of money to be made in the U.S. And over time, you won't be as reliant on, on that SAR that we talked before about because you can move your model to a lifetime economics. And I think a lot of players are trying to figure out the mix of using outsource versus some of the insource. But as we say, for some of the suppliers, it's a great time to to be here, because not only do you have ultimately a lot of content, a lot of new technology that can enter the car, that for the first time can really much more than pay for itself. If you think about, if we sat here 10 years ago and we talked about supplier content entering the vehicle, a lot of it at the time was things that were mandated by regulations, like a a stop-start system for a a, a small hybrid. And that's great. And it caused a lot of growth. But when you think about the value of safety the value of autonomy, the value of these business models, you now are talking about potentially thousands of dollars of content or revenue per, per unit that can much, much more than just pay for itself many times over with some of these new models over time. And so you're it,
0: talking about the idea, the idea that a camera used to just be a camera but now a camera is enabling a new business model that can generate more revenue.
1: Absolutely, cameras, yeah, the electrical architecture, the compute all around that now you're able to say because of this potential expansion from 40% to something higher and the incremental revenue on top of that from the new service, uh, I can now have a value proposition of adding a lot more, yeah, camera, whatever content you're adding and pay for it many times over, particularly once you get to full consumer AV miles. It's a long journey, but it's one that we think is really powerful and going back to the question about what you do in-house versus what you outsource if you're a supplier one of the things i, I guess you'd want is your automaker customers being stressed for for time <laughs> and there are new competitors entering the ev space and looking to scale very rapidly and so we think that if you're an automaker you don't really have unless you already have some embedded capabilities and some of them do but unless you have those embedded capabilities already it's kind of too late, right? You kind of need to go out and rely on on some trusted partners to get you there before somebody else does. It's why before, when I talked about the opportunity, I didn't only capture for automakers. I mentioned automakers slash mobility platforms because it doesn't just have to be the automakers, of course, that can capture these. There's a lot of tech companies looking to capture these opportunities as well. And yeah, some suppliers are very well positioned for that.
2: The car companies are just going to be slow moving for all sorts of cultural reasons. And that's why the stock market's basically betting that Tesla's going to replace them. And you could say Tesla's got a whole lot of tier one suppliers, which it does. But for the most part, its strategy is just to cut everything out that it can and build it in-house.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah look, I mean, I mean, certainly if you're a, an EV newcomer or, or Tesla's now been, been around for a while, yeah, you've got some advantages. I mean, maybe technology, certainly speed to market distribution. What One thing that we've published on Tesla, we think like their FSD approach, frankly, is not going to be the, the most self robust. Driving. Yeah, yeah, full self-driving approach. In terms of what we think you need to get to, which is, again, superhuman safety and human level performance over time. And so you know, that's one example, let's say, of a company that, that, and everything else has moved quickly, but on the sensor suite here in particular, it's still an older sensor suite than what you're seeing. The quote traditional car companies even start to move in and, and use. And so it, it does depend on which vertical you're looking at to see who, who may be ahead or behind. But, but broadly speaking, absolutely, the traditional car companies have those disadvantages, speed to market at times, not always, at times it's technology in-house and then and they have to, of course, leverage suppliers, distribution, people debate dealers and versus direct sale. But they do have, the traditionals, a very large install base. So once, let's say you have the right vehicle, the right technology for, let's say, autonomy and data on the road, you're able to presumably leverage a much larger install base, assuming you have the right software and partners to, to work on for the appropriate OTA over-the-air updates. In, in our view, it'll, it'll be a mix around that. But the broader point is it's not just about getting the technology right. It's about who gets the business model right because AV to us is not a, just a feature. There will be a lot of AV and, and, and type of autonomous features. It's ultimately a business model and one that could be very powerful to changing the economics of the quote, automaker business today. So yeah, when we look at companies, both new and traditionals, we, we give a lot of weighting to what are you doing on the AV front and how you think about that from a business model perspective?
2: I'm kind of biased in favor of thinking about things from the perspective of business models. Yeah, there's been super informative. Thoughtful, insightful. So thank you for your Y'all time thank you for and having for, me. Yeah, this
1: was great. Great conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, EJ. Yeah. Until next time. Absolutely. Thanks, guys.